Luis Adima. I'm a researcher in creative technology and games design at Brunel University London. I'm delighted to welcome you to this podcast about mixed reality applications in cultural heritage. I've started this podcast to explore in more depth the challenges and opportunities in designing and developing mixed reality experiences for cultural heritage. Some of them emerged during an online symposium that I ran in June 2020 that brought together heritage industry professionals, researchers and technology developers. My guest for today's podcast is Holly Maples. Holly is a freelance theatre director, actor and cultural studies scholar based in London. She is the postgraduate research director in East 15 Acting School. And I've known Holly for several years now uh, through my endeavours on theatre and how to bring theatre uh, practices in immersive technology design. Hello, Holly, and welcome. Hi. Um, I'd like to ask you first to introduce yourself and your work uh, to our uh, podcast listeners, particularly the work that you do with immersive heritage performance. So um, uh, like you had mentioned, I'm a uh, theater director as well as a um, researcher. And quite a few years ago, I started to get interested in immersive theater and the uh, kind of way immersive theater uh, techniques help bring the audience into the experience. Uh, I kind of shadowed Punch Drunk for quite a number of years and um, volunteered with them over their production of The Drowned Man and wrote an article on the kind of way audiences and performers engaged in that work. At the same time, I, I create a lot of performances that involve the idea of challenging historical narratives and thinking of the past in different ways and the negotiation between publics and, and the audience and how history is often uh, designed or constructed in different types of cultural productions. And so I was working with uh, museums in Norwich and uh, a heritage organization called Past and Footprints that were creating a series of performances and events and public engagement activities designed to uh, bring to life the past and family letters who were an important family from the 14th century to, through to the uh, beginning of the 18th century. So I wanted to uh, collaborate and experiment with using site-specific immersive performance techniques with the heritage industry to see how that might affect audiences' experience of history and how you could bring them inside the idea of the liveness and the imaginative world of the past so that they didn't just see it as something outside of themselves or something that was easy or um, didn't challenge their worldview in some ways. And those are about forgotten narratives, uh, issues of race, issues of identity, of class and gender in, in a lot of these kind of past discussions. So that's how I started to kind of use different immersive techniques that I'd learned through Punch Drunk in the context of heritage design. And so um, often it's, it's that sense that you're trying to bring to life the experience through sensorial engagement. You're making the th uh, three-dimensional relationship to the audience with the history around them in a heritage site. So they're not just passively watching something, but actually experiencing it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very much interested in the word, uh, the use of the word immersiveness in, in this uh, uh, setting, because obviously you're talking about uh, immersive performance, immersive experience that is not, that doesn't have the digital in. So I would like to ask you, what is, 
what is immersiveness in, in, in this setting, in this field, in this area? Um, I think very similar that um, to you and, and the kind of discussions we've had around the kind of contested nature of the term immersive in digital technologies. It's the same in the theater. Immersive can mean many, many different things. But for me, I would say the most important is that it's highlighting for the audience uh, their relationship as if they're immersed in an experience. So that uh, though all theater and other types of performance engage audiences and embodied experience, sensorial experience, even if you're sitting in a normal theater, you are experiencing an event that is uh, all encompassing in some ways. But what immersive theater does is it tries to get the audience to imagine along with the performance that they are in this world that's being created through the performance. So this is great for the heritage industry or, or for museums, which already are trying to get people to tap into an imagined understanding of a different culture, a different world, a different time. So what I tend to do is, is try to um, bring to life through participatory experience, the theater audience with the event. So for example, you get them to pass letters, you get them to open things up to discover things themselves as if they are detective in the experience, get them to hear events around them that are not or designed to make the audience imagine it's not just for them, that it is existing without them, that it will continue once they go away, that they are not the only important thing that they are seeing. And also bring out things like smell and taste and touch that allow for other types of viewing, other types of experiencing from the audience that aren't just oral or audio. Mm -hmm. You've, yeah, you've mentioned about this, the, the multisensorial nature or the tactile and experiential nature of the performance. And um, I'm, I'm always looking at what, you know, a mixed reality can borrow from, from storytelling in theater and from, from the creation of these performances. So uh, my question would be like, what, uh, what of these um, or how maybe? Uh, this nature, this multisensorial um, embodied experiential nature of these performances could be um, not transferred, but what could mixed reality design learn from that? I think mixed reality, uh, similar to other types of digital experience, have similar challenges um, that, that the theater industry has always had, which is how do we turn people into active rather than passive participators in the experience? So it's great to put, say, VR um, technology, you put it on a person and they see all these amazing things, but how do they engage with it? How do they think that it's not some kind of magical thing from the technology? How in some ways do they lose the technology and the experience so that they can fully commit to what's happening around them? And the problem with VR, as we know, is that if it's outside of that experience, they put this very heavy headset on that they can't see around them and you can, it's very hard to uh, turn that into something that is experiencing in their real environment. Whereas augmented reality, what's so exciting about it is that it merges the um, experience created and constructed by the technology with the real world around them. 
And that, of course, is what theater, immersive theater tries to do as well, using objects, using different parts of the story, teasing the audience on that journey so that they are engaging with whether those designs are theatrical props or are um, digital technology created the, through the AR experience, they're all the same, you know? Uh, and so what I think uh, AR can learn from theater is how you combine that with character, combine that with a story so that these things are not just attractive or interesting or enticing objects they're viewing separately, but that they feel a relationship to them. They feel an emotional investment in them. And they might discover things through their moving a, a paper or a page or looking at a fireplace that isn't there, but it's a part of the story, not just a setting, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So where did you start from, you know, when you're creating these performances? Is that an object? Is that a person or a character? Um, um, yeah, it, it depends on, because um, generally I'm commissioned by uh, characters organizations or I pitch a project for a very particular museum exhibition or uh, heritage um, festival, et cetera. And I will take things that I find in the historical material from that uh, exhibition or festival or material. And then that's what I will use. So if, for example, the Pastons, they were well known because of their letters. So mm -hmm. I used letters and objects that were very particular to the story of the Paston family. And those would be the key things that audience members would follow through the stories. So the letters take on their own life. Letter writing becomes a part of the very important emotional action that is occurring in the story. And I get the audience to pass those letters along. So if it's, um, or I did a project on the Vikings and it was looking at Viking warrior women and, um, also the kind of contested history around that. So I might include scholars debating around them, documents that um, you know, found graves of bones, things where they can, they can imagine themselves as the archeologist looking at that item. And then it kind of magically turns into a Viking myth, for example. But I think this is where tactile objects can be very, very exciting. There's this wonderful book, um, about uh, kind of modern drama from Chekhov and Ibsen from the 1870s called The Stage Life of Props, which talks about how props in those particular um, dramatic stories and um, plays are an actor. They have action. At the beginning of the play, a gun might be seen. By the end of the play, that gun is gonna be used. And it's a linchpin of the show. And I think this is where museums and heritage sites are full of objects or of the idea of objects that used to be there. So if you can use those objects as, as the kind of fundamental glue of the storyline, people start to feel those objects are not just dead items in front of them, for example, or an ornate thing they can't touch, but they're actually something with a life, with a history, with an emotion, with a story that people will remember. We want, want to spark the audience's imagination so they, um, they can believe themselves using those objects in a daily experience. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is also an opportunity for, uh, for museums to either exhibit their objects or use some replicas, I guess, Definitely. so that people can touch it and pass it on. Uh, but at the same time, you have the, the exact copy of something that is in the archive, for example, or behind Perspex glass, right? Exactly. 
And I think that's where AR is such an exciting um, new technology to use, because of course there you can make digital replicas that people engage with, even if it is in some ways imaginatively, um, but that allow us to use that kind of detail. That's very, very hard to do when you're just, when you're creating replica props, unless you have enormous budgets, for example, but are also allow people not to be worried about them being harmed. For example, in punch drunk shows, uh, and every evening objects get stolen and they have mm -hmm. to remake them and remake them and remake them. Whereas okay. of course, when you're using AR, you can create these really beautiful, delicate things and don't have the fear of it getting lost. Mm. But yeah. The the issue with AR just as I imagine because I'm I'm very much drawn to the tactile nature is that you are not able to touch yet at least uh, this object. So um, as it, do you think that there is one one level of engagement lost there, or is there a way to um, to fill in this gap? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think uh, um, uh, we were, you and I were talking about this notion of if we combine the live performers with the um, digital experience. What's nice about that is you might see an actor holding an object, but then you later are kind of um, playing with imaginatively with AR, where you're, you know, just making the gestures with your hands to say, move a book, mm -hmm. even though you don't feel the book. There's some really interesting new discoveries in uh, uh, neuroscience around this notion of embodied cognition and um, our imaginations are incredibly powerful things, um, but we just have to help them. We've got to make them feel that kind of, that motion, that idea of suspension of disbelief is a very much a part of the game of the theater world. And that I think technology can learn from, that you don't have to rely on the technology, but you can meet the audience halfway or mm -hmm. the public so that they are imagining this experience. They're playing the game along with you. And mm -hmm. also things like smell can help you with that you know, so that you can actually almost really feel the object that you are not really touching, but kind of touching through the technology or the kind of air experience, or also see an actor hold it later on, see something later on, engage with it. It just helps build that, um, the layers of meaning Mm -hmm. that this is, is being created for an audience member. Uh, and it is true, like sometimes just making even not, the greatest replicas of things and giving it to a person can be really, really powerful. And that of course you can't necessarily do with technology, but I do think that there is a way by combining these relationships to things that we can use the richness of the, te of the technological experience or AR with say an imagined uh, storytelling relationship of live theater to, to create a really exciting experience for museum goers and heritage industry mm -hmm. participants, especially for people who may feel alienated from a museum. Uh, I mean, I grew up, I, I love history, I love museums, I love art, um, but some people feel very uncomfortable in those spaces, so we need to help them uh, get encouraged to, to think of this as a part of their experience, and that is also something that um, the theater can help, I think, technology with, is, is that it, it, it's community building it makes people feel they belong. You can help them through their engagement with technology, which can also help people who say are not normally comfortable with museums, but then also people who may not be terribly comfortable with technology. Mm -hmm. There are two uh, audiences you can assist there. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in your uh, performances, I wanted to ask, do you, how has the audience uh, 
respondents have they been have they participated in these performances yes. <laughs> i i do think it's it's uh it's really interesting it's been quite fun uh especially i have created performances in very different types of communities and locations in um, uh, the Midlands in Ireland, in Norfolk, in London. And of course, these are very different audiences with very different levels of experience in this type of work. Uh, but I think there are ways you can engage different, allow audiences to, or the, the participants to experience it in different ways. So we never kind of forced people. We do kind of have them follow us along the site. We let things happen around them so that you're not, uh, it, it, asking people to become performers in, in that notion of participation. But what you are is getting them to imagine that experience and participate as much as they wish. And it's amazing how they start to get more interactive as they go along. For example, uh, we did our, our first big production was at Oxnead Hall in Norfolk for the Past and Footprints project. And um, this was a beautiful, beautiful site. Uh, across um, these, these rather large and elaborate grounds. And uh, they followed the story through the different locations. And this was following the life of the, la the first Earl of Yarmouth, um, Robert Paston. And we ended up getting to a place where what his funeral took place. And that was and the church on the grounds of the estate. And um, we gave people funeral cards. And just like a normal funeral, uh, the, his widow, was standing at the gate and people shook her hand and said, I'm sorry for your loss. And just, you know, these, these little things, they all remarked in their feedback forms on how powerful that was for them and how mm -hmm. they felt they really were at a funeral. Um, and of course you can do this with heritage sites because the sites are so beautiful. I mean, they're so evocative, like they are doing half the work for you. So yeah. ways to help them not see them as any church, but as this church or as any location, but the specific stories of that location can be really, really exciting. Yes, and I think this, this, this starting from the stories is um, the most important takeaway for designing immersive experiences uh, in heritage. Um, I know that you have done a project with binaural sound, and I know that sound is very important. I have uh, seen the same thing when I was doing Sutton House stories, uh, where we had like a, fireplace sound we, we did have a virtual fireplace in the physical fireplace sorry virtual fire in the physical fireplace and we had the crackling fire noise throughout the experience and a few a few people a few participants who uh did uh, the uh, the test they noticed the sound they were trying to find the fire uh which i thought was uh, was great uh, not all of them did but um but it was great to know that the soundscape plays such an important role together of course with the the voice actors we had and in your performances you have you know you you have obviously um uh, like real ar actors uh, but tell me more a bit about your binaural sound project and uh, what did you discover as well what are the insights uh, I, I really find binaural sound an extraordinary tool um, it's uh, when I first uh, was starting to kind of think about uh, creating audio experiences, audio heritage walks and other things. I mean, because the biggest challenge we have as, as live theater performers is it's ephemeral. You know, we created this amazing show at Oxnard. It was just beautiful and lovely. But but of course, it it can only live for a very short amount of time because heritage sites, uh, they you know, you can often do these productions once or twice or have certain kinds of audiences, but you don't stay for a terribly long period of time. Whereas if you create a uh, um, binaural sound experience, you can leave it there 
and let people participate and experience that for quite a long time. Uh, but what is exciting about it is I think it can have those kind of storytelling aspects. What I liked about the live performance we did at Oxney Hall is my goal was sometimes to have audience members come around a corner as they're kind of moving from one site to the next with some of the characters in the show and then see somebody in the distance rushing off. And they think, oh, what, what are they doing? Where are they going? What's happening to them? So that helps build this idea that it's real, that it's happening. You're living in this world. It has nothing to do with you. And um, uh, I had this music kind of happening at this church uh, where the audience was coming up a hill and they could hear us in the distance. And by the time they arrived at the church, and this was for the funeral, it was finished. It was over. So binaural sound, when, when you have that kind of experience with uh, headphone theater, for example, or audio heritage walks that are using headphones, uh, it, it's three-dimensional, it's embodied, it moves. It's not just in one location. So it can really trick the brain into believing a person is moving behind them. A person is around the corner. They're whispering in your ear. Or again, hearing sound in the distance at this church and then you get there and it's gone. And so you can really imagine it's living, it's a lived sound experience. And um, I uh, uh, had looked online, there's a really exciting work being done by a um, group of uh, binaural sound uh, designers called Passport, who do a lot of projects for the National Trust and other kind of heritage sites. And um, I'd spoken with them and hopefully I'm well able to collaborate with them in future, but they were talking about how it's very important to integrate the environment into these sound experiences. So let's say there happens to be a cow field next to you as you're kind of walking along. You can put cleverly binaural sound of say cows mooing in that field. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, which can help audiences they'll look over and see some cows. And then they think, they think even more that what they're hearing in their ears is a part of a lived environment around them. Very similar to AR. So there's something super exciting about how that can make you, it enhances your sensorial experience of the sound, um, makes it feel like it's, it's, it's physically moving you. <laughs> you know, I, I just think, I, I, I think binaural sound is, is just extraordinary in terms of how it can help the audiences imagine a world. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I guess also sol- it's very sol- um, solitude as well, because yeah. you have, the headphones and then you are on your own and I know it's probably because of that it might be difficult to blend this with actors but just thinking uh, in uh, using it in uh, in an AR piece for example have you ever tried to combine this with live acting? Yeah I mean I think you can it it again is uh, that kind of um, integration of, of what, what the binaural sound is doing in a moment, then a live performer pops up and you can hear them. I mean, the thing is, because yes, you may uh, be hearing the kind of audio world separately from the actor outside, but you're hearing both, right? Um, so it, it just depends on how you engage that with other people around you. So they can hear that kind of the ambiance of, of that sound design a real person speaking because binaural sound is three-dimensional. It allows sounds to come from different sides. That allows then a real person coming from one side and speaking to you, be a part of that experience for you. It's just like everything else. You've got to very carefully choreograph that 
which you can do. I've done things with um, even video with live performers and performers who've been recorded with audio where you've got the audio recording and a live performer and you just have to time it to a T. So that, and actually it can be really thrilling for an audience member because they, they think, oh my God, this is real, you know? Oh, I didn't realize that person was real, especially if they've heard the person on their headphones and then they hear a person speak and they walk on. You know, sometimes you want to also excite and um, uh, surprise the audience. And that's what a live performer can do inside these kind of um, technical experiences or um, and technology because um, they help again keep that that web of of what is real, what is not real, mm-hmm. um, being contradicted, being challenged, being questioned by your audience. And I guess there's a lot of work on the gestures of the actors in both timing it, but also I guess because if you are if you're wearing you have wearing the headphones and the sound is the predominant let's say um, sense then uh, I guess you have to be able to communicate somehow with the, or the actors to communicate with you as an as a audience member. Um, yeah, so I mean, and actors are quite good at that. I mean, they're so, if you just think of it as choreography, timing can be done so well that uh, it, once you've done, I mean, that's what <laughs> rehearsals and repetition are for, right? That, um, that it almost, it's almost instinctual for them, the actor to move in the right time. There are also different types of codes you can do in terms of music that are, or bells, sounds, or, or various things that can be coordinated through the sound designer and um, the technicians with the live performers. So uh, these are things that have to be very well thought out as to what the logic is behind what you're doing, how it enhances the storyline, why this timing matters, etc. So the pre-planning, I think, is huge, but the actual execution of it. Um, I think it can be very easy uh, with uh, actors who have rehearsed and worked with something well to execute. Mm-hmm. And in uh, using the technology as well, in now I'm just me, I'm thinking about smart glass AR. I know there have been also theater performances in in VR, uh, quite uh, quite increasing actually in the latest years. Um, and uh, I know that we've talked about the combination of the two. Uh, so, from your perspective, saying bringing AR, ARs, uh, AR glasses into some kind of um, immersive uh, heritage, theatrical performance, um, what do you think it brings for you as a theater director, um, this technology? Well, I think for, um, it, it's a couple of things. Um, for one thing, it, it, again, like we were talking about, it, it's quite exciting to have the be able to rich ornate detail that, um, a, a, that a um, AR can bring. Or, or like you said, when you had the kind of crackling of the fire in the fireplace, things in the window they can look out and see. These are things we can't do with a live performance. I mean, I think uh, modern technology is amazing, you know, and using that kind of design to actually enhance the richness of a site. Uh, because like I think you had mentioned in some of uh, your research, the idea that uh, some of these heritage sites uh, are actually quite bare of the objects that they used to have. And um, especially I quite like to work with smaller museums, with museums that perhaps don't have the kind of resources that a place like the British Museum do. And how can we engage new audiences in those sites? How can we bring to life things? How can we um, kind of challenge spaces? I also love uh, 
house museums because they do show there's so much richness for a character to kind of build from. But I think that's where the combination of, of uh, live storytelling with the kind of ornate detail and, and other types of magic of um, uh, design capabilities and um, storytelling devices that are used with um, AR can really, really help. That kind of mixture of the real world with this technology and then also a live performance to really kind of bring home to the audience their relationship to it, the intimacy of their relationship to what they're seeing and what they're doing. On the other side, it's also quite useful so that you can really, so many, um, the kind of heritage performances I create, you've got all these amazing people who are historical figures who are so important in this work, but it's very, very hard to have a cast of a billion people or whatever, you know, or uh, so there, there's something kind of great about how you could have say two actors or even one actor that's live with an AR experience to yet still uh, stay truthful to the cast of characters involved in the piece. And as long as you kind of integrate that logic into the storyline, especially this kind of sense of walking into the past and these kind of ghost figures and, and um, the fact that you somewhat see through them on an AR um, uh, device, uh, but you can integrate that into the story quite well and then use two live actors who um, perhaps were also in the air experience at some point, then pop out live to kind of surprise and embed the audience with this kind of personal relationship and uh, really mix their, their sense of what is real, what is live, what is um, uh, a design or what is found on the technology. I think it can be super exciting. I think it's a very exciting research area uh, moving forward, the, the benefits that the two fields can get from each other, like AR design and, uh, and theatre design, because um, this is also how my trajectory has been into theatre when I was trying to find stories first and technology second uh, in these experiences. And that's where I found all these um, techniques from theatre. And I really just scratched the surface really on on, you know, on what theatre can bring, um, but also the ability of, of the immersive technology to enrich this story, like the telling of these stories. Um, and I think the design of this, which is the, at the centre, mm. uh, it's a really exciting, it's a really exciting space. Uh, so um, the other thing I wanted to ask is about, um, as I'm always interested in the, uh, in the power of technology that has in, uh, in creating uh, change. And I think uh, what I would like to ask you is the, what role do you think with all of this can AR play in decolonization of the museum, which I know is something else that you have worked on or through your, yeah. uh, your work you have done. Well, yes, I'm, I'm very, I'm quite passionate about <laughs> decolonizing museum spaces. And uh, I think uh, it, it's really interesting. It's like, it, that obviously is, is quite a buzzword at the moment, but the idea is that, that so many museums and heritage sites were built on colonization, right? They were formed through it. They often were, um, museums were kind of gallery spaces for a celebration of empire. Uh, also the kind of traditions from the 19th century were very hegemonic, very much about hierarchies very much about showing one story, uh, one viewpoint, as opposed to multiple viewpoints. So the point of decolonizing, it's, it's, it's also about changes of leadership and allowing more voices to be heard and also to be in these museum and heritage um, sites. But 
it's also to challenge audiences uh, or the public's idea of, of what they're seeing and make them question history and make them question these kind of constructs and these kind of ideas. Uh, and, and so you see multiple stories and you see the kind of challenges there to uh, what I call a traditional notion of bite-sized history. This means this, or this year was this, you know, uh, mm -hmm. things that are easy facts. Um, and I think AR can really help with decolonizing museum space by showing all these different objects in a particular kind of way that people engage with, that people interact with, that can reveal the other people's stories, that can show maybe we shouldn't trust this information we're being told, or and, and really see so they can um, start to reflect on how they view their world around them, how they view the priorities and what they see, and understand that that is constructed by society and that we are still very much the children of the 19th century. The 19th century still dominates a lot of the way we see the world and the ideas around us. And so how can we challenge those notions of these voices? How can we let um, uh, a great book from the 1980s on uh, decolonizing literature, The Empire Strikes Back. How can mm -hmm. we let other people um, have uh, space but uh, I think this, what's difficult is it's hard to change people's perceptions, right? Their fixed beliefs on what they think they know. And actually by using humor, by using um, objects in a different way, by getting them to see and use their own um, understandings of games design, of detective fiction, of, of other types of stuff, you, you can make them start to unsettle those beliefs and challenge them. And I think this is where new technologies and also um, immersive theater performance can really help because it emotionally connects people to stories. This is very important, especially if you're trying to get people to engage with this material who are not already clued in, who mistrust it, who have who don't want to decolonize the space, right? You, you can do things in it. This is why I love museums and heritage sites because people of all kinds engage in those spaces of all ages. And if you can change their view of how they see oh God, how exciting is that for, for our future? I really like this last, uh, you know, this last uh, tone, like to finish the, the podcast uh, here. And I'm, I'm really excited about these new opportunities that the combination of, of these disciplines opens. Uh, and also about, you know, acting as well, uh, not only about theater, like theater making or, or, or um, um, theater writing, but also acting and, and how the heritage industry professionals also, uh, they are all in, in creating this. So I, I, I like very much this fact that we're moving in a more a real interdisciplinary uh, way of working and one that can actually have such an effect uh, on society. Uh, I was just thinking that in terms of our collaboration and just collaboration and interdisciplinary collaboration in general, it's so important because then we challenge our own sense of what we think we know and we perhaps can create more exciting and more interesting future disciplines by not staying in our silos. Absolutely, 100% agree. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming to talk to me. No problem. Thank you so much for having me.